text uh, this morning as it has been for, I don't know, over a year, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, written specifically or particularly for uh, the Jewish people to demonstrate to them that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, uh, the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures, the promised son of David. And uh, as we come to our text tonight in Matthew, or this morning in Matthew 26, uh, the Messiah has less than 24 hours left to live. Uh, at this point, uh, the uh, Last Supper is over. Judas has left to arrange for Jesus' arrest. Uh, the, Jesus takes the 11 remaining disciples, one of them, Matthew, the author of this gospel, Matthew's an eyewitness to all of this, uh, takes them with him. They leave the city of Jerusalem, go across the, Kid, the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives and to um, uh, the uh, grove or garden called Gethsemane, which means oil press, because apparently there not only did they grow olives, but they had a press where uh, the, the olives were pressed to make oil that was used to light the temple. And so they have gone there together. It's interesting, John tells us in John 18 2, Judas knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So apparently this was a place where they frequently would go to meet and that's why uh, Judas was able to lead uh, the guard there to arrest Jesus because he was aware of it. Well, with that little bit of background, uh, let me ask you to uh, attend carefully as we begin this morning's reading, Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, that's the 11 disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. 
And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. For do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitude, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I daily sat with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Now, in, I was going to say just a few minutes, that might not be quite accurate, but uh, before the service ends, we're going to pray together the Lord's Prayer. And because it's so familiar, it's easy at times just to rattle it off by rote without thinking about what we're saying when we pray that prayer. That's why the Westminster Standards, both the shorter and the larger catechism, include an exposition of the Lord's Prayer so that when we pray it, we can pray with understanding. Now, regarding the third petition, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 103 says, what do we pray for in the third petition? And the answer is in the third petition, which is thy will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven, we pray that God by his grace would enable us to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. And I think the angels are an appropriate example of doing the will of God wholly and enthusiastically, but I think there's a better example. The angels, uh, to whom he refers, uh, do this in the, the blessedness of heaven. But there is one who, uh, in this fallen world, perfectly did the will of God for 30 years in obscurity, poverty, and hard work. And for the last three years of his life, he did the will of God perfectly in the face of opposition and hostility, not only from men, but from the powers of darkness. Obviously, I'm referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think our text this morning highlights in a wonderful way how the Lord Jesus is uh, uh, the perfect example of doing the will of God. I've got six points for you this morning. So we need to get going. I'll repeat each one of them twice if you're taking notes. And the first one is this. Jesus' soul was profoundly troubled at the prospect of his approaching passion. Jesus' soul was profoundly troubled at the prospect of his approaching passion. Now, Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the word acquainted doesn't suggest just a superficial. It means a deep knowledge of grief. That was true of Jesus Christ all of his life. He had a sinless soul. Are you ever troubled, offended, pained by things that you see going on around you? Uh, sinful things or sad and painful things? Well, think what it must have been like for our Lord Jesus, sinless that he was, to live in the midst of this fallen world for 33 years. 
So as old, humanly speaking, as he could remember, I think Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In, in Mark 9, 19, he said at one point, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think that was an experience his whole life, but especially as the, the climax of his life and ministry draws closer, as the cross looms in front of him, as he entered his ministry, then that, that became even more intense. We're told his brothers and sisters did not believe in him. At one point, they said, he's out of his mind. Early in his ministry, he went back to his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up, and he uh, read the scriptures and, and spoke in their synagogue. And while they, at one sense, appreciated it, they said, but isn't this Joseph's son? And then when he told them how uh, the Lord had, had sent uh, blessing to Gentiles and overlooked uh, uh, his own covenant people, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill to throw him over. That was his neighbors for 30-some years in Nazareth. Of course, the Jews and their leaders called him insane, demon-possessed. We were not born of immorality, they said. Aren't we correct in saying you're a Samaritan? He casts out demons by the power of Satan. He's a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer. But especially, so during his ministry, it got worse. But especially as we come to this text tonight, as the, as the, the cross looms before him, the, the pain intensifies. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had said, uh, now is my soul troubled. The Greek word can mean distressed, terrified, frightened. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. But here in our text, in verse 37, Jesus himself, he took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You know, people can die from a broken heart. We visited uh, last weekend. We weren't here because I was preaching in North Carolina. We visited uh, uh, my dear aunt there. And uh, her husband, who's now with the Lord, uh, said how much he hated uh, April the 8th. Is that the right date, sweetheart? Because when he was a little boy, he and his brother were uh, playing. They were trying to find bottle caps that they could sell. And they were excited. His brother was a couple years older. They were running across the street. And a car came and hit and killed his brother. And he was right there and, and saw it happen. It was April the 8th. Their parents were doing something else. They'd been left in the charge of their grandfather. And he died a few months later, they think, because of sorrow. Because he was the one responsible for them when his grandson was hit and killed. And Jesus says here, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even to the point of death. Weymouth translates, he began to be full of anguish and distress. My soul is crushed with anguish to the very point of death. The Amplified Bible says he began to show grief and distress of mind, was deeply distressed. My soul is very sad and deeply grieved so that I'm almost dying of sorrow. This is Jesus' own expression of where he is. Luke tells us as he went to pray, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. How about you? Have you ever been heart sick? 
depressed, overwhelmed with grief or anxiety. Some of you may be there this morning. If not, if it's never happened to you, if you live long enough, live for very long, it will happen to you. At some point in your life, what a blessing, what an encouragement to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has been there too. The truth is, Jesus has experienced these terrible emotions far more than any of us ever will. But that means that he is able, as the writer of the Hebrews says, to be a sympathetic, even an empathetic high priest. As he sits in heaven, you know, when Jesus went back to heaven, he didn't kick back and stop loving and serving us. He's ministering to us now. He's interceding for us, and he does it sympathetically. It's not just an encouragement, but it's a wonder, a reason to love and trust him and to thank God that the ever-blessed Son of God would be willing to become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that the Father, who said in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant in whom my soul delights. The Father whose soul delighted in him would be pleased to send him to experience this for us. So the first thing we notice, brothers and sisters, in our text is how profoundly Jesus' approaching sufferings affect his soul. And the next thing we notice is how he responds to this overwhelming suffering of his soul. That's our second point. Jesus sought solace for his soul in prayer and in his disciples' company. Jesus sought solace for his soul in prayer and in his disciples' company. Jesus responds by praying. Again, verse 36, they went with, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. I've already read it once. I'm not going to read it all over again, but you know, uh, we have this happen three different times. He goes and he falls down and he prays. Then he gets up and goes back to his disciples finds that they have fallen asleep. He encourages them to stay awake and pray. He goes and prays a second and then a third time. And besides prayer, he also seems to have sought uh, solace and comfort in his disciples' present. Verses 36 and 38 and verse 40, we have with them and with me four different times. Jesus went with them. He could have said, I need some time alone, fellas. I'm going, to, I'm going to go out and pray. No, he took them with him to Gethsemane. And then when he got there, he left uh, the eight, but he took three with him, the three who had been with him when he raised Jairus' daughter, the three he'd taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, Peter, James, and John, his special three he takes with him, and he says, remain here and watch with me. And then he comes to them after he's been praying and finds them asleep and said, Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Brothers and sisters, again, this is a wonder that in his human nature, in his humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ was always a man of prayer. Luke, especially in his gospel, stresses again and again. Only Luke tells us that it was after his baptism, the Spirit came upon him, the Father announced as he was praying. 
He tells us it was on the Mount of Transfiguration as he was praying that Moses and Elijah appeared. Uh, he stresses the fact that he was constantly praying. He delighted in the Father's fellowship. He sought his guidance and his direction and strength. But now, especially in his deepest trial, he goes to prayer. What do you do when your soul is overwhelmed? Is prayer your first or your last resort? When you've tried everything else and it doesn't work, then, okay, I guess I better pray. What about when you're so upset that you can't pray? Have you ever been there when you're just so upset that you just don't seem to be able to pray? Let me encourage you, if you find yourself there, to read scripture, the Psalms especially. The Psalms, one of the reasons, many reasons why the Lord's given us the Psalms is because they allow us to express virtually every human, every spiritual emotion. And the psalmist, Psalm 88, again, is, is, a, is a prayer by a man who's burdened. And so in reading the Psalms, uh, again, appropriate Psalms, you can find prayers that express what you may not be able to express yourself at that time. Sing them. Listen to them. If you can't sing, listen. That can help. Claim Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps our weakness because we do not know how to pray as we should. Oh, blessed Spirit, help me here. I want to pray. I need to pray. I'm weak. Would you help me? And pray, he goes on to say, he intercedes for us. Pray for me as well. Don't be afraid to pray liquid prayers. The psalmist in Psalm 56, 8 talks about God keeping his tears in a bottle. Our prayers, our tears can be liquid prayers. And so... Time alone with the Lord, as Jesus did here. He left the three disciples and went away by himself when he prayed. Time alone is vitally important. But we also need to beware in times of great desolation not to be too isolated. To seek out godly company. Don't forsake worship. We've known people who in the midst of trial quit coming to church. That's the worst thing you can do. We ought to be here every Lord's Day, but especially... In the midst of trial. And it's interesting that our Lord in his humanity found comfort apparently in the presence of those he loved. Remain here and keep watch with me. To Peter, James, and John especially. Seek out godly, loving company. Fellowship is no substitute for prayer, but it can be a very helpful supplement to it. And we ought to be sensitive to others that we know are struggling. And seek to be with them, not to ignore them or leave them alone. Sometimes we're afraid because we feel like, I, I just don't know what to say. They're going through some real trial. We feel like the burden is on us to say some kind of magic words. We don't know what to say, so we just stay at arm's length. Let me encourage you not to do that. Remember the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. There are three things you can always say to somebody who's suffering that can be a blessing. I am so sorry. Paul tells us in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm praying for you. Share 
scripture. It doesn't have to be long. It may be just a verse, Romans 8, 28, or some other passage. It's been a blessing to you. Take them a meal if you're in a position to do that. But remember, the comfort of those we love can be a blessing. Even our Savior seemed to seek that at this time of great distress. And we can minister to non-believers as well as believers in this same way. It's not identical, but it's an opportunity to show them love and maybe an opportunity to, to point them to Christ and witness the gospel. So, it's instructive, though not surprising, that Jesus sought solace by means of prayer and also in the presence of his beloved disciples and his friends. His friends let him down, but his prayer did not. That's our third point. Jesus found peace in embracing the Father's will instead of his own. Jesus found peace in embracing the Father's will instead of his own. Now, Jesus knew very well what was about to happen at the cross. Back in Luke chapter 12, uh, early on uh, in, in Luke's gospel, um, when he was said he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. He knew how the, the, it was all going to end there at the cross. He says in verse 39 of our text, going on a little farther, he fell on his face saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again, in 44, he prayed for the third time, saying the same word. The key issue for our Lord was to avoid his desire to avoid drinking this terrible cup of the wrath of God. Often in the Old Testament prophets, God's wrath is described as a cup which has to be drunk. It's a, it's a frequent expression of the wrath of God. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen and what it would involve. Let this cup pass from me, he said. He knew Isaiah 53 very well. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities or crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his scourging, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He knew Psalm 22. He would quote it on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because at that point, he, uh, Galatians 3 says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And we can't really conceive of what it was for him, the sinless son of God, who had always lived in perfect fellowship with the father, to uh, the holy son of God, to be made sin and to be separated as the father turned away and poured out his wrath on him. Jesus was so terribly distressed that he needed special help and the father sent it to him in the form of an angel. Luke 22, 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And he resolved this stress by submitting to the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. Now this had always been Jesus' attitude. 
John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. John 6.38, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He could say in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, prayed just a little earlier in the upper room in John 17, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He had done everything up to that point that the Father had wanted him to do. But it's being put to the ultimate test now. And yet, what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. Three times. It's an interesting contrast, brothers and sisters. A profound, interesting, too, too uh, shallower. It's a profound contrast between the first and the second Adam. And their great tests. The first Adam was tested in a perfect environment. He was sinless at that point. He had no indwelling sin. He lived in a perfect environment where, you know, a garden where he could eat everything except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet he failed and failed to do the will of God. He disobeyed in sin and brought himself and all of us, the whole world, under a curse. But here our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived his entire life, in this fallen world, with all the pain and everything it involved, remember, he lived, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't a sinner, but all the things, the, the pain, the weakness that our, our fallen bodies are subject to, he was subject to all of that. We read of him being hungry and tired, so sleepy he fell asleep and didn't wake up when the storm was, was rocking the boat. And yet, he never failed to do the will of God, and not just outwardly, as the Pharisees flattered themselves they did, but always from the heart. Because we live in a fallen world and we have the remnants of the fall, even as God's children, doing his will, doing the will of God is often not easy, but it's always the best. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Father, Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Paul says in Romans 12 too, the will of God is good, acceptable, perfect. It's not easy, but it's always the best. And the corollary to that is sin violating the will of God is often easy. It's often the, the path of least resistance and there's a certain pleasure that often goes with it but it's always ultimately destructive. Our Lord knew that. And so he embraced the Father's will. And embracing and submitting to God's will for us, as with our Lord Jesus, is often an act of a sanctified Christ-like will in spite of our feelings. part of Christian maturity, growing to the point that we are willing and able by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, to say, not my will, but yours. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, although Jesus knew that draining the cup of God's judgment would involve terrible suffering and was honest about his aversion to it, he also knew the Father's will was infinitely wise and good, so he submitted to it, and we see his submission demonstrated right after his time in prayer. Our fourth point, 
Jesus did not evade arrest because he knew that it was his father's will. Jesus did not evade arrest because he knew it was his father's will. Now, it's clear in the Gospels that Jesus often evaded arrest. I read to you about uh, Luke 4 where it says that the people in Nazareth led him out to the brow of the hill. They're going to throw him over. Verse 30 says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Sounds like a miracle. He just walked through. The crowd parted, and, and they let him go. John 7, 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 8.59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 10.39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He had done it many times, and our text shows us that he could easily have done it here. Verse 53, you think I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was typically 6,000 Roman soldiers, so 12 legions, 72,000 angels. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And John 18 tells us that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them when, the, when uh, Judas and the crowd first came, he said, who do you seek? They answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus could easily have evaded arrest, but he didn't because he knew it was part of the Father's will to which he had now submitted himself. Verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Verse 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In John 18, 11, he said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. The will of God is often inscrutable for us. God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We often don't have a clue what God's doing. In fact, what we see and what we feel often looks like the opposite of good. But he says, I know the plans I have for you. And they're plans for welfare, for blessing, and not for calamity. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And as it did for our Lord Jesus, the will of God for us at times, brothers and sisters, will involve things that are painful, difficult, and even, frankly, unjust. There are times when we can and maybe we should push back and say, this is wrong and I'm not going to stand for it. We may have legal or other kinds of ways where we can push back. There are others where we may not be able to do that, and we shouldn't. As in this case, Jesus could have done that, but he knew at this point it hadn't been the Father's will previously, but now he's reached the point, it's the Father's will, and he just submits. We have to seek wisdom from the Lord in cases where we at least might have an option. Sometimes we don't have any, but where we do, Lord, should I exercise my option to, to push back, to avoid, or should I not and just submit? But when his will for us requires our submission and the endurance of pain, and even in justice, as it did for our Lord Jesus. In this case, 
we can trust him for grace to endure and to bless and use our submission for his glory and our ultimate good, Romans 8, 28. So even though he might easily have escaped arrest as he had often done before, Jesus meekly submitted. He didn't raise his voice. He's the, here's where the meekness we read about in Isaiah 42, one way that it's expressed here. He submitted to it as part of his father's will for the cross. But that raised a further question, why? Why did Jesus embrace the father's will, especially when he knew it was going to be so terribly painful? That's our fifth point. Jesus embraced the father's will because he loved and trusted the father. Jesus embraced the father's will because he loved and entrusted the Father. Jesus, our Lord, loved the Father with a perfect eternal love. Again, from all eternity, the Father and the Son had enjoyed perfect, unbroken communion and love. And his love for the Father made him desire both the Father's pleasure and the Father's glory. He wanted to please and glorify the Father and he knew that that would be furthered by the cross. Terrible as it would be, it was the Father's will. It would please him not in some emotional, terrible emotional way, uh, uh, you know, a sadistic kind of way uh, that he would take any pleasure in his pain, but because of what it would accomplish. His love motivated him to obey the Father. And he also trusted the Father to do what he had promised before the foundation of the world. The covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son, the, the Father gave the elect to the Son as a love gift on the agreement that the Son would come and redeem us. And he promised that if he would go to the cross, he'd raise him from the dead, he would exalt and glorify him and give him a great multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue to live in love and joy through all eternity. And the Son believed that he would do that. 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Faith, Jesus Christ lived by faith. And this was just the climax of that. You know, it's much easier to trust someone that you know loves you. Someone that you know has your best interests at heart, especially when they're infinitely wise and they know what's best and almighty and can do it. And that's the way it is here. Loving children seek to honor and please their parents and they trust them. And that was our Lord Jesus. So in one sense, this underscores the deity of Christ, the perfect love which he'd had from all eternity with the Father, but it also underscores the, the fact and the beauty of his perfect humanity. Here is the one person who ever lived who kept the great commandment perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. You know, that underscores what you and I lack and what we need, because none of us has ever done that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, profoundly short. Even when we do the right thing outwardly, it's often with, at best with mixed motives. Sometimes they're downright sinful. We're just plain hypocritical. We want to impress people or whatever. Other times it's mixed. We don't have, we could never achieve a perfect righteousness before God. But Jesus did. It, it underscores what you and I need, but it also underscores, beloved, what you and I have 
now in Jesus Christ. When we come in faith to Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sins and embrace him as Lord and Savior, our guilt is taken away and his sinless life is credited to us. The Heidelberg Catechism says it's as if we stand before God as if we had never sinned or been sinners. As if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful standing. And it underscores not just what we need and what we have in justification, but it underscores the beauty of sanctification, the spirit from the inside out, applying the cross, the resurrection life of Christ to make us more and more like that. And the beauty of glorification when it'll be perfect and we will love God and love our neighbor perfectly as Jesus did. So the ultimate cause of Jesus' submission to the Father's will over his own was his love for and his faith in the Father. But as powerful and important as that is, even that, I think, is not the whole explanation. There's at least one more factor which, in some respects, is even more remarkable and more wonderful. This is our last point this morning. I think Jesus also embraced the Father's will because he loves his people so deeply. Jesus also embraced his Father's will because he loves his people so deeply. Now, our text shows us, and the whole of the Gospels and, and the, the Bible and our own lives, if we pay much attention, but our text shows us that at their best, Jesus' disciples are very weak and very sinful. Jesus said to him, I tell you this night, this is Peter, verse 34, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Then he, then he goes on and says, after he had gone to pray, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. Again, he came and found them sleeping. And then in verse 56, the last words of our text, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. How about you? You ever fail the Lord? I know I do. And Jesus knew that. In fact, he, he predicted it in verse 31. Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away because of me. Jesus knew what they were going to happen. And you know, when the Father chose you to be his, he knew everything about you. He knew your worst possible sins. You have never surprised him. We may have grieved him, but we're never surprised. And knowing all of that, he loved us. And Jesus, knowing all about his disciples, how many times did he said, oh, you of little faith, and he would tell them something they didn't understand, yet he loved them. John 13, Jesus knew his hour had come and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, loved them to the uttermost. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Do you ever feel unloved?
it certainly can happen. Sometimes, rarely, sometimes, often, and easily. What do you do when that happens to you? What should you do in your family, other relationships, in the church? People who should love you, people who have loved you, and they appear to stop. Let me encourage you, the first thing you should do is look to Jesus Christ. Look to Gethsemane. See him agonizing, sweating as it were, great drops of blood as he prays for you. And look to the cross where he went and gave himself for you. Paul could say, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think Jesus died for a great faceless uh, multitude where everybody just has a number, but each one of us individually, he knows the hairs on our heads. He loved us and he gave himself for us. He said, greater love is no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. And that's where we see the father's love displayed. God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and the spirit as well. And as we contemplate that, we should praise the Lord, but we should also, I think, love him back. We love because he first loved us. And one way we do that is by embracing his will for our lives as our savior did. The Westminster Catechism answer talks about two things obeying and submitting to the will of God. To obey has to do with his reveal, his normative will, which we have in the commandments and, and the rest of scripture. And to submit has to do with his providential will, those things that happen to us beyond our control and being prepared to trust him and accept those things. Is there somewhere in your life this morning where you're struggling with the will of God? Or something that you know he wants you to do which you're not doing? Something that you're doing that you know he doesn't want you to do and you don't want to stop. Maybe it's his providence, some very painful and difficult situation that's come upon you and you can't really do anything about it. You don't necessarily understand why. Let me encourage you to look to him for his grace through the spirit to love and trust the father as you should as Jesus did and embrace his will for you. So to review and summarize, brothers and sisters, Jesus' soul was profoundly troubled by the prospect of his approaching passion. He sought solace for his soul in prayer and in the disciples' company. He found that solace in embracing the Father's will instead of his own. He didn't evade arrest because he believed it. He knew it was the Father's will. He, he embraced the Father's will because he loved and trusted him and because he loves us so deeply. I recently read a quote by Elizabeth Elliot that says, if the deepest desire of our hearts is his will, that is the guaranteed route to joy. It doesn't always look or feel that way to us. It didn't look or feel that way to Jesus as he contemplated the horrors of the cross. That's why he pled not once but three times, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But because of his love, and faith in the Father and his love for us, he looked beyond his own agonies to the eternal joy 
that would be much greater, and he went to the cross. Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He knew the will of God was good and acceptable and perfect, and so he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, and went to the cross. You and I will never suffer anything like what our Lord Jesus Christ suffered for us. But whatever short-term pain God's will may cost us, may the Spirit enable us to have the same perspective of faith and trust that he did, and to live and even to die saying as he did, not my will, but your will be done.